You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Save big money on everything for your next project at Menards. Spring is here making it the perfect time for outdoor projects. Suncast storage sheds are an excellent solution for protecting outdoor lawn and gardening tools. They're easy to assemble, and the all-weather construction provides water resistance and UV protection. Save big on Suncast storage sheds. View our selection of Suncast products today in-store and on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. This is the second and final part of a short series about the legend of Pope Joan. So if you haven't already listened to part one, you should go back and do that. But as always, a refresher. Since at least the time Martin of Opava's Chronicle of the Popes and Emperors entered circulation in the late 13th century, the insuppressible story of Pope Joan has spread around the world. Some of the details of that story differ from account to account, but the gist remained, and remains, incredibly consistent that a woman, disguising herself as a man, rose through the ranks of the Catholic Church until she reached its apex, the papacy itself. Usually referred to as Pope John or Pope John Anglicus, sometimes with a couple of possible numbers, the 7th, 8th, or 9th usually, she might have gotten away with the deception. But unfortunately, she found herself in the family way, and soon everyone else found her in that way too. One day, when proceeding from St. Peter's to the Lateran, the Pope went into labor and gave birth in the middle of a street, and the jig was most decidedly up. What happened to her next, whether she died in childbirth, was killed on the spot, was sent to a nunnery, or tied to the tail of a horse and dragged to death, is disputed. Who the father of the child was also varies from source to source, though not in a way that we're going to worry about. The fate of the child usually goes unmentioned, aside from one version where he grows up to be a bishop and has his mom buried at a cathedral, where she then performs miracles. And her name varies almost endlessly when she is given one. For our purposes, we're going with the one that's stuck, even though it wasn't introduced until the 1600s. Pope Joan. The most important discrepancy between accounts is when Pope Joan became Pope Joan, but we will get back to that in a bit. In part one, we looked at what we could call the forensic evidence of Pope Joan's existence, and we came up a bit wanting. There are four key claims made among the different variations of the story. One, that the street upon which Joan gave birth was thereafter shunned by the popes that followed her. Two, that a statue to her was erected at the spot. Three, that another memorial inscription was placed at the point of her death. 
and four, that after her exposure, the Holy See began using a chair with a hole in the seat in the election of new popes so that a bishop could reach up and give the possible pontiff's junk a tug to make sure everything was as it should be, and announced to the College of Cardinals, he has two, and they dangle nicely. At first, each of these claims appears intriguing. Yes, popes did avoid the road in question. Yes, there was a statue there. Yes, some sort of inscription was found outside the city where Joan could have been dragged. And yes, the church did have the marble seat with the hole in the tuchus. Dig a little deeper, though, and these facts begin to crumble. The seat is much older than the Joan legend, and probably was used ceremonially because medieval Catholics thought it was pretty and didn't realize it had started out as a Roman toilet. The inscription on the memorial is unclear, but probably signals that said memorial was built in remembrance of a high priest of Mithras in the first century. The statue and the shunned street are a bit more complicated, but ultimately it seems more likely than not that neither one of them originally had to do with Joan. All in all, the physical evidence is looking, at best, unpersuasive. But there is one more reason to suspect Pope Joan was real, the strongest reason of them all. And that is where we're starting today. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, The Holy She, Part 2. By his own admission, Jan Hus didn't even want to become a priest in the first place. But after receiving a master's degree from the University of Prague in 1396 and teaching there for a couple of years, he was ordained because he thought the priesthood would be easier than a real job. Which it might have been, but not for Jan Hus. From even before his ordination, Hus, that's goose in Bohemian by the way, Hus was a rough fit for Catholicism. He had been exposed to the ideas of the English philosopher and Catholic heretic John Wycliffe and found himself pretty much agreeing to them. Like Wycliffe, he disagreed with the church practice of selling indulgences, basically buying your way out of hell. Like Wycliffe, he was doubtful that the bread of the Eucharist actually transubstantiated into Jesus' flesh during communion instead preferring the concept of impanation, that Jesus' body naturally resided in part within the Eucharist all the time. Most of all, he agreed with Wycliffe that people should be encouraged to read the Bible for themselves, in their own language, and that, even more dangerously, the Bible should have ultimate authority over truth. Which is to say, if the Pope and the Bible disagree, the book wins. The Pope wasn't going to like that, but luckily for Jan Hus, there were, at the time, two competing popes. Pope Gregory XI had returned to Rome from Avignon in 1377. 
but Avignon had continued electing their own popes until in 1409, a council was held at Pisa to try to settle the matter once and for all and reunify the church. The council elected Alexander V to be the new and only pope, but neither of the other popes, Gregory XII in Rome or Benedict XIII in Avignon, agreed. Trying to solve the two-pope problem, Pisa had created a three-pope problem. Doesn't that just beat all? yelled Jan Hus as the Holy Roman Emperor tried to get him to accept the Pisan Pope. Why should we trust the Pope when we don't even know who the Pope is? Hus thought the whole kerfuffle only showed to go that the church was corrupt and the papacy invalid. And a lot of Bohemians agreed with him. Soon, he had a bit of a church of his own, a fourth church, the Hussite Church. So in 1414, when another council was called, this time in Constance, to try to get down to one pope, the council also asked Jan Hus to attend. Hus was reluctant. He figured they only wanted him to show up so they could kill him, but the Holy Roman Emperor Sigismund promised him safe passage. So he made the trek to Constance, where he was immediately captured and jailed. The Council of Constance eventually reunified the Catholic Church and concentrated its power back in Rome, but its goals with Hus were harder to meet. They didn't want to kill him for fear he'd be made a martyr, so instead they tried to get him to recant his heretical views through a year of starvation, deprivation, and torture. But Hus wouldn't recant, and eventually he was put on trial for heresy and burnt at the stake. This was not the win the council wanted, though, because exactly as they feared, Hus was seen as a martyr, and his followers, the Hussites, fought a 15-year-long civil war against the emperor, the pope, and most of the monarchs of Europe. Impressively, they managed to hold Bohemia and Moravia against the entire continent for more than a decade. At trial, Hus had refused to acquiesce. Instead, he used the courtroom as a very public platform to air his views, which the council refuted. Except for one. When arguing that there was no need for a pope, Jan Hus reminded the court that there had been a period of more than two years, during which a phony pope had pretended to rule, and the church had done just fine. That phony pope was, of course, the female pope whom Hus called Gilberta. The prosecution had plenty to say about the rest of Hus's arguments, but on the female pope thing, they had to admit the point. When the English dissident anti-papist Walter Brute was tried for heresy in 1393, his defense also brought up Joan to defend his distrust of the papacy. And again, Brute's defense was roundly lambasted by the church faithful except that nobody scoffed at his mention of the female pope. Brute and Hus are part of the most intriguing bit of evidence in favor of Pope Joan's existence. That for more than 250 years, virtually everyone, believer and non-believer, papist and Hussite, Roman, Pisan, and French, agreed without controversy that the story was true. It was common knowledge to the point that when the Pope first returned to Rome from Avignon, he avoided the street upon which Joan had supposedly given birth. So obvious that a statue on the road was either made of or taken as Joan and put in city guidebooks for centuries. 
when the church commissioned a series of busts to be made at the Siena Cathedral in Tuscany of every pope in order, Joan was plopped right there between Leo IV and Benedict III, as Martin's Chronicon said, and remained in that place for 200 years. When finally some cracks began to form in the edifice of the legend, it wasn't because of new scholarship or increased skepticism or anything so impartial or intellectual. Doubts only started being publicly raised in the mid-1500s because of the Protestant Reformation. The same sorts of anti-papal arguments that Jan Hus and Walter Brut had made a hundred years earlier were taken up in larger numbers and by louder voices in the 1560s with Anglicans, Lutherans, Calvinists, Anabaptists, and other newfangled Protestant heretics recognizing in the Pope Joan story a prime way to challenge the inerrancy and even the competency of Rome. In response, the Catholic Church, which, lo, those many years, had been perfectly content with the fact of Joan's misrule, began getting antsy. Somewhere around the turn of the 17th century, Pope Clement ordered that that bust of Joan in Tuscany be removed, recarved into Pope Zachary, and placed a long ways to the left. Somewhere around that same time, the statue on Via Sacra was removed, probably on orders of Pope Sixtus V. That's a confusing name. And before that, as Protestant polemics weaponized Joan like a plague-soaked corpse to be thrown over the walls of Rome, bishops, priests, monks, and other Catholic apologists began crafting incredible attacks on her credibility. Those attacks aren't really worth detailing because by and large, they're not made with any real interesting evidence. They're just the pure spirit of distilled religious partisanship. But the arc of belief in Joan is itself the best argument for her reality. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. 
So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Is it really possible that some nameless interpolator concocted an errant paragraph out of the blue, slipped it into a single copy of Martin of Apava's Chronicon, and with that one obscure act, convinced the entire Western world of a pure fabrication almost immediately and so fully that it took nearly 300 years for anyone to look sideways at it? It seems pretty far-fetched. And it sure is convenient that the story only began to face scrutiny when people were highly motivated to scrutinize it. A lot of Pope Joan backers, and there are a lot of Pope Joan backers, go as far as to assert a conspiracy, headed up perhaps by Pope Clement, who removed the bust, or Pope Sixtus, who removed the statue. And, uh... Maybe this is a good opportunity to take a moment and say that of all the 170-odd topics I've researched over the course of this show, I have never seen so much shoddy scholarship as there is about Pope Joan. It is a true and forbidding wasteland. Some of that bad scholarship comes from Joan deniers, but at least most of that stuff is old. The Pope Joan boosters are still publishing absolute codswallop up until this very day. A paper from five years ago, for instance, claims to have found proof of St. Joan's existence in a pair of coins. They're both denaries, or deniers, and both feature monograms of John VIII, who was Pope between 872 until his death in 882. But the monograms are slightly different. Each of them has, at its center, a large combined letter, an H with an N superimposed over it. And each monogram features two other letters, above and below the combination HN, an S and an O. But in the older coin, the S is at the top and the O is at the bottom, whereas in the newer coin, the O is at the top and the S is at the bottom. This, says Dr. Michael Habeck of Flinders University, is evidence that the coins refer to two different Pope Johns VIII, and that the first is Martin's John Anglicus, Pope Joan, ruling between 855 and 857. It is facially unpersuasive. Habeck argues that a pope's monogram was like his signature and that it couldn't have changed in this, frankly, pretty minor way. Which might be true, but even if it is, there's no reason to think that some dyslexic minter didn't reverse the S and the O accidentally, or that the order for the coin wasn't placed in error. It's even possible that the coin he ascribes to Joan is a forgery, although he makes a pretty strong argument that that isn't the case. The rest of his argument, however, is strained to breaking. The gist is that conspiracy again, that in the late 16th or early 17th century, the church, out of embarrassment or looking to quash Protestant criticisms, erased Pope Joan from her rightful, wrongful place as pope in 855 and retroactively pulled the reign of the next pope, Benedict III, back to that date, exactly the way Clement had her bust removed from Vienna. It's difficult to get your mitts around just how implausible this is. 
There's no question that the medieval church was powerful and plenty of reason to suspect that it would have liked to put the kibosh on the Jones story after Lutherans and Anglicans began waving it around as a criticism and joke. But if there had been some substantive evidence of Jones' issue, it would have been spread far beyond even Rome's ability to destroy it. And by the time the church might have tried, a lot of that evidence would have been in the hands of its enemies, the Protestants. Not to mention that a cover-up of this scale would have probably left evidence of the cover-up. Orders would have had to have been written and sent all around the Christian world. Dozens or even hundreds of people would have had to have been tasked with destroying books and letters and maybe even artifacts without leaving any books or letters or artifacts themselves. And when it comes to burying embarrassments, the Catholic Church has a bad track record. Why, another Pope John, the 12th, was a known robber, murderer, and rapist who is thought to have committed incest with both his sister and his niece, sired multiple children, gave title and land to a mistress, and allegedly died at the hands of a cuckolded husband when he walked in on the pontiff with his wife. Benedict IX was made Pope three separate times between 1032 and 1048. The first time, he was removed from office for the crimes of adultery, murder, sodomy, bestiality, and sponsoring orgies. Then he came back in 1045 with an army and expelled his replacement, Sylvester III. But this time he lasted less than a year before John Gratian bribed him to leave the office and make him the new pope, Gregory VI. He literally sold the papacy. But after a couple of years, he decided he wanted to be Pope again after all, and returned to Rome where he contested the papacy from Gregory. Sylvester came back too, and said he was still the true Pope, and so for a period of roughly three years, there were three possible Popes duking it out until Holy Roman Emperor Henry the Black stepped in, marched on Rome, and deposed Benedict and Sylvester before forcing Gregory to quit. Maybe the most embarrassing moment in papal history took place in 897, when Pope Stephen VI had the body of a previous pontiff, Pope Formosus, dug up after lying seven months dead, dressed in vestments, and put on public trial for having ascended to his station illegally. The kangaroo court found the rotting corpse guilty and threw it into the Tiber, where Joan's statue supposedly ended up and labeled Formosus's papacy illegitimate, attempting to wipe it from the record. That effort failed spectacularly. Stephen thought that berating and persecuting his dead predecessor would improve his popularity in Rome, but it did precisely the opposite. Formosus's body washed up on the banks of the river, and people began saying it was performing miracles. A mob formed in support of the cadaver, rose up and deposed Stephen, throwing him in jail where he was soon strangled to death. Then Romanus was elected pope. He annulled Stephen's papacy and attempted to remove his record, but he was deposed too. <laughs> Several other succeeding popes tried their damnedest to remove the mark of the so-called cadaver synod, but while they eventually cleared Formosus' name and got his body properly buried at St. Peter's, the story, obviously, was not suppressible. Is it conceivable that a pope being executed after giving birth on a street in public view just 40 years earlier was?
I don't think so. Not to mention that we have a pretty good understanding of what went down in 855 when Joan was supposedly pope. Pope Leo IV died on July 17th, and according to the official records, Benedict III was consecrated on September 29th. That leaves a gap of a little more than two months, not two years, for Joan. During that short interregnum, the cardinal, librarian, and historian Anastasius Bibliothecarius attempted to insert himself onto the seat of power, but he was deposed after a scant few weeks. The conspiracy theory alleges that this did not actually happen this way, that Benedict didn't come to be pope until 1857, and that the records of his 855 consecration must be fake. But we can be sure of Benedict's consecration date because of a different coin, announcing him as pope. It must have been struck on or very soon after September 29th, 855, because the reverse side displays the cameo of Holy Roman Emperor Lothair I. What the minter couldn't have known, what Benedict couldn't have known, what no one in Rome could have known, was that Lothair had died within literal hours of Benedict's consecration, on September 29th, 855, in Prüm, Germany. By early October, news would have reached the Vatican, and no one would have coined any currency featuring his visage. There is just no way around it. Benedict had to be made Pope at exactly the time the official records say. Things look even gloomier for Pope Joan when you step back and do the math. She supposedly was Pope in 855. She wasn't, but let's for the sake of argument pretend she was. That leaves a gap of more than 400 years between her papacy and the main record of it, Martin of Opava's Chronicon. That is a big red flag, huh? But while the Chronicon was certainly the most influential account of Joan, it turns out it was not the earliest. In fact, there are a healthy handful of earlier documents suggesting her rule. Granted, most of them are certainly interpolations made later, and almost all of them appear to have been added on by people who read and believed the Chronicon, who then saw other church documents that didn't mention Joan and thought they'd correct the mistake. The text of most of these accounts are clearly derivative of the version in the Chronicon. One particularly curious example is a copy of the Liber Pontificalis, which relates the Chronicon's version verbatim. The Book of Popes was composed, incredibly, by Anastasius Bibliothecarius, the cardinal and librarian. But only one copy, a later copy of the Liber, includes the story, written in different handwriting than the rest of it. And the facts of Anastasius' life directly contradict it, seeing as he was the one who tried to usurp the papacy before Benedict was installed. However, there are two sources that actually, legitimately, predate Martins. The first is from the Chronica Universalis Metensis by the obscure French Dominican Jean de Mailly. De Mailly's Chronica is only a couple of decades older than Martin's Chronicon, but that still makes it the oldest authentic reference to the woman pope. The entry reads, Query. 
concerning a certain pope, or rather female pope, who was not set down in the list of popes or bishops of Rome because she was a woman who disguised herself as a man and became, by her character and talents, a curial secretary, then a cardinal, and finally pope. One day, while mounting a horse, she gave birth to a child. While mounting a horse? Anyway, immediately, by Roman justice, she was bound by the feet to a horse's tail and dragged and stoned by the people for half a league. And where she died, there she was buried. And at that place is written, Petra Potter Potrum, Papis Prodito Partum. O Peter, father of fathers, betray the childbearing of the woman pope. At the same time, the four-day fast called the Fast of the Female Pope was first established. What's most intriguing about this paragraph isn't that it's 40 years older than Martin's, it's that it's very different from Martin's. It mentions the memorial plaque, which Martin does not, but ignores the shunned street, which Martin notes. It describes the horrible fate of Joan, which Martin seems to know at best little about. And it says that there was a fast established, which isn't mentioned anywhere else. At first, you might think that these versions being so different is a point against the legitimacy of the story. But really, it is the opposite. Because it's quite clear that the authors of the Chronicon and the Chronica did not know about one another. Martin, or Martin's copyist, did not invent the story. It must have come from somewhere else. Demai's version was itself picked up and regurgitated by an acquaintance of his, the much more influential French Dominican Stephen of Bourbon. And both of their accounts do something else to pull Joan out of the fires of improbability. They suggest a different date than Martin. Demai places his paragraph in the section of the Chronica for the year 1099 and Stephen explicitly describes it as happening in 1100. 855 is a no-go, for sure. But 1100 is a lot better. For one, it substantially shrinks the gap between the supposed event and the first time it's talked about. And while the events and persons surrounding the Vatican leave little room for Pope Joan in 855, 1100 mm, is a bit more complicated. The period around the turn of the 12th century was a tumultuous time even by European standards. There were a number of feuding factions within the church, not to mention the looming hand of Holy Roman Emperor Henry IV, who elected his own anti-pope, Clement III. In 1084, Henry seized Rome and installed Clement officially there, while the real pope, officially at least, Gregory VII, had to flee to a distant fortress, which Henry's army quickly lay siege to. For the next 14 years, a series of popes reigned in absentia, while Henry's Clement sat in Rome. In 1097, Pope Urban II was able to re-establish himself in Rome, but when he died less than two years later, the whole thing went to pot. Officially, again, the next pope was Paschal II, and he was consecrated quite quickly, but the anti-pope Clement was still out there contesting him through 1100. And when he died, Emperor Henry installed another anti-pope, Theodoric. Pascal soon captured Theodoric and excised him, at which point Henry's anti-cardinals elected another anti-pope to contest Pascal, Adalbert. 
Adalbert was captured and convicted even quicker than Theodoric, at which point, you guessed it, another anti-pope was named, Sylvester IV, who managed to hang on to his claim for six years, until Henry's son, Henry V, forced him to abdicate so that Pascal would officially bless him as emperor. All in all, that makes six potential popes over the span of Joan's other time slot. In all of that confusion, it might seem more likely that another female claimant could have been overlooked, or that one of the anti-popes, about whom little is known, could have secretly been a woman. But in a much more immediate sense, this seems even less plausible than Martin's timeline. Since the papacy was so bitterly contested, any rumors of cross-dressing probably would have been pressed very firmly by Joan's enemies, who would necessarily have possessed a tall bully pulpit from which to lob accusations. Any way you cut it, or push it, or press it, there's just no way to fit Joan into the record, and no way to account for the many contradictions and discrepancies in her story. Yeah. There are a couple of enticing breadcrumbs, like the street and the statue, which can't be entirely discounted, but they are buried in a sea of counterfacts and interrogatories that are just plain insuperable. They cannot be supered. I defy you to super them. Which, I must say, is too bad. Because I'd really like it if she were real. And at least for the last 50 years, most all of the people arguing that she was are clearly motivated by the same desire. But it ain't so. That's not the end of our investigation, however. We do still have one stray hair to contend with. Sure, Martin's account of Joan can't be right, and neither can demise. But the existence of those two independent versions indicates that neither of them made it up. Joan might not have been real, but her story definitely was. So where did it come from? We'll try to find out after this. Shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you do when the woman you love dies? Well, of course you dig her up and you live with her. Aww. The show examines weird things. There are plenty of old photographs from this time period of children out in the streets playing in and among the dead horse carcasses. Oh, I miss those days. Things used to be so much simpler. Cat and Jethro. Then there's the urine wheel, which sounds like a really bad game show. Things done weird things. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. That is really mysterious. Join Cat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected, as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. The Webby Award-winning Box of Oddities podcast from Airwave Media. In approximately 1260 AD, a woman going by the name of Guglielma entered Milan, carting her young son in tow. Nothing of her life prior to this moment is known, although there's decent reason to believe she might have been an estranged bohemian princess. 
At any rate, in Milan, she began living an ascetic life of poverty, service, and religious study. This was not a unique career arc, especially for widows of the time, which Guglielma may have been. But in her case, she began attracting adherents. And soon enough, she had something of an underground church going on. The Guglielmites, yes, that is the word for a group of people faithful to Guglielma, elected their own bishops and cardinals and such, just like the real Catholic Church did. Except that all of their elections were for women. And did they elect a female pope, I hear you asking? Friends, you know they did. Her name was Maifreda de Piravano, and she was Popess of the Guglielmites until the Inquisition, predictably, uh, burned her at the stake. So that's cool to know, right? There was an all-female shadow church, a mirror image of the Catholic one in Milan in the 13th century. Spill that one at your next dinner party. And while you're at it, you might bring up that this was the exact same time during which Martin of Opava and Jean de Mai were writing the first known accounts of the female pope who came to be known as Joan. Coincidence? Maybe. <laughs> I mean, nobody brought up the connection until the 20th century from what I can tell, so that's a little funky, but like I say, most of the scholarship about Pope Joan is crap, and that's especially true the further back you go. Most of the people arguing about Pope Joan in the 1600s were really arguing about whether the true Christian spirit lived in Catholicism or Protestantism. And so most of their arguments don't end up being very good at actually doing the business of explaining Pope Joan. One exception to this rule is the Vatican librarian, historian, orator, and cardinal Caesar Baronius. He posited that the myth of Pope Joan might have had its roots in the life of Pope John VIII, whom he figured might have been insulted as a woman because of his softness in dealing with Photius I, the patriarch of Constantinople, which presaged the Great Schism. But intriguing as this sounds, Baronius pulls it directly out of his ass, and anyway, John VIII was a pretty ruthless dude. As was John VII, who some other Catholic apologists after Baronius thought might have spawned the Joan legend in the same manner. Sabine Baring Gould, the writer of Onward Christian Soldiers, not to mention a very good book on werewolves which came in handy a couple months back, explained away Pope Joan in no uncertain terms in his Curious Myths of the Middle Ages. He said he had, quote, little doubt that Joan was a response to all of the chaos around Paschal and his many rival antipopes, and that she was concocted as an allusion to the whore of Babylon in the book of Revelation, a sign that Rome was falling and the end times were upon mankind. It's not a bad little theory, really, and it's clear that a bunch of medieval writers did see Joan in this role, including Petrarch, who described a series of plagues that he thought followed her death. But how Baron Gould became so sure of this theory, which he is the first to explicitly suggest in the 19th century, is beyond me. The most widely considered explanation, which several sources cite as if it's a matter of fact, goes back to the pornocracy. No way. No way that's right. Surely that's supposed to be an M, right? No, there it is. Pornocracy. Huh. The pornocracy 
otherwise known as the Saculum Obscurum, Dark Age, or the Rule of the Harlots, was a 70-year-long stretch that began, of all times, with the death of Pope Formosus, his posthumous trial at the hands of Pope Stephen, Stephen's arrest and strangulation, all that good stuff. Well, in the midst of all of that papal chaos, one aristocratic Roman family, the Theophylacti, decided to make lemons out of lemonade and set up a system by which they would control all future popes. What's more, it worked for a while. The Theophylacti managed to install six popes and one anti-pope who were together known as the Tusculan popes, creating a system of papal nobility where the aristocrats and theocrats were one and the same. The whole of the pornocracy had begun with the Roman senator Theophylact and his wife, Theodora. On the side, Theodora was hooking up with the Bishop of Ravenna, who, in the midst of their affair, became Pope John X. So there was a bit of power sharing going on along with the wife swapping already. Most contemporaries agreed that Theodora was pretty much entirely in charge, not just of her husband and the Pope, but of Rome itself. Lutprand of Cremona called her a shameless whore who exercised power over Rome in the most manly fashion. Which, yes, problematic. Theodora really was a piece of work, though. Yet she was nothing compared to her daughter, Marazia. And it's when Theodora died that the pornocracy really escalated. Marazia organized a coup and imprisoned Pope John. And then, probably, murdered him. So a new pope was elected, Leo VI. But Marazia didn't like the cut of his jib either, so she probably murdered him. Then she probably murdered the next guy. But the next pope, John XI, she approved of because he was her 15-year-old son. His dad was probably one of the other popes, by the way. A few years later, Marazia's other son, Alberic, fomented an uprising in the middle of her third wedding ceremony and imprisoned his mom. Alberic then became ruler of Rome and ruler of his brother, the Pope, until later on when he elevated his bastard son Octavian to the role, and ta-da, Pope John Twelfth, the robbing, murdering, incestuous rapist. Most of the popes to come through the 1040s were either directly descended from Theodora or else under the control of her family, until finally her great-great-grandson, Pope Benedict IX, was thrown out for bestiality and murder, came back, sold the office, came back again, and got his ass kicked by Emperor Henry, who was finally able to more or less bring the Theophylacti into line and end the pornocracy. Anyway... The thought is that the female pope originally referred to Theodora, or Marazia, who were, after all, the real power behind several popes, and much loathed for it. It makes a certain kind of sense, but it's not at all clear how you get from Marazia, the craven, ambitious backstabber, to Joan, the wizened sage, and actual pope who gave birth in the road. And there are no intermediary steps between the two in the remaining record. Like I say, there's a mountain of bad scholarship about Pope Joan, but there's plenty of good stuff too. 
Elaine Burrow's 2001 book, The Myth of Pope Joan, is great. Burrow doesn't have a single theory for Joan's origin, which is probably to his credit, but thinks the germ of the idea might have been devised by 13th century Franciscan monks who were looking for a bad pope because their order was being, as they saw it, at least persecuted. Craig Rustici's The Afterlife of Pope Joan is great, too. He doesn't come down on one explanation or another, hedging his bets, which is probably to his credit, that the genesis of Joan could have been the effeminacy of John VIII, or the pornocracy, or else the explanation favored by Rosemary and Daryl Pardo. The Pardos, a married couple mostly known for editing early fantasy fanzines, wrote what is certainly the best book I have found on the subject, and what I'm willing to bet is the best book on the subject, period. The Female Pope, The Mystery of Pope Joan. I really cannot stress enough what a delight their book is to read. It's clever, it's compelling, it's thorough, and it's level-headed. Like me, the Pardos wanted Pope Joan to be real, and like me, they nevertheless begrudgingly concluded she was not. Given that, they also posited a few ways the legend might have begun, which are the best possibilities I've found. For one, while there wasn't a female pope, there were a couple of known female church officials who cross-dressed their way through their careers. Not to mention, naturally, an impossible-to-calculate number of women who might have succeeded and never been found out. One who was found out was a woman named Hildegund, but for many years called Joseph. Her mother died sometime in the mid-12th century, and her father then took her on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land. But to ensure her safety, he dressed her up as a boy and called her Joseph. On the way back, he died, and Hildegund was robbed and left on the street. Eventually, after being arrested and making it through the ordeal of hot iron, it's a long story, she ended up at Schenau Abbey in Odenwald, Germany, as a novice. She never revealed her true identity, although on several occasions, she did arouse suspicions from her fellow monks. On one occasion, she aroused something else, too. Caesar of Heisterbach quotes one of the monks as saying, This brother of ours is either a woman or a devil, because I have never been able to look at him without temptation. Her sex was only revealed after her death in 1188. Hildegan's story is not very much like Jones at all. But it was a very popular and influential story, and helped seed a large number of similar, though likely legendary ones, throughout church history. It could be that Jones was like those. Almost certainly, all of those who wrote about her were aware of Hildegund. I don't know how to choose a favorite explanation among the lot, so I'll end with the Pardos favorite. After the rule of harlots ended, the church faced an even greater crisis, the Great Schism, when the Orthodox Church, centered in Constantinople, splintered off from the Catholic Church in Rome. In 1054, the separation was complete, and Pope Leo IX wrote a very passive-aggressive missive to his Orthodox counterpart, Patriarch Michael Cerularius. It read, in part, God forbid that we wish to believe what public opinion does not hesitate to claim has happened to the Church of Constantinople. 
Namely, that in promoting eunuchs indiscriminately against the first law of the Council of Nicaea, it once raised a woman onto the seat of its pontiff. We regard this crime as so abominable and horrible that although outrage and horror of it and brotherly goodwill do not allow us to believe it, nevertheless, reflecting upon your carelessness towards the judgment of holy law, we consider that it could have happened because even now you indifferently and repeatedly promote eunuchs and those who are weak in some part of their body, not only into clerical office, but also to the position of pontiff. The Pardos track the rumor of a female patriarch in Constantinople back to the 10th century, and most of the accounts place this hypothetical ruler during the rule of Charlemagne, which, in all likelihood, means that we're talking about the patriarch Nicetas I of Constantinople, who was not a woman, but he was a eunuch. So, was Nicetas I the real Pope Joan? I don't know. It's not a super clean explanation, but the telephone game that gets us from Nicetas to Joan is considerably more intelligible than the one which starts in 855 or 1099 or with John VII or John VIII. Maybe the true best explanation is that Pope Joan started out as a joke. A larf shared by some French Dominican friars that was too dry for outsiders to recognize as humor, and which leaked out by accident, snowballing into the unstoppable legend that barreled through medieval Europe and continues its trek to this very day, where it no longer has much speed, but continues to rock back and forth in the annals of pop history. Yes, today you could say that the ball dangles nicely. Pornocracy! I know it's not much of an end, but there isn't much of an end. That'll have to do. Music for today's episode provided by Epidemic Sound and Blue Dot Sessions. You want to support the making of this show? Usually I phrase that as a question, but I know the answer. So you're going to head over to patreon.com slash the constant and sign up to get early and ad-free access to new episodes as well as monthly bonus content. Or else you're going to tell a friend they should listen. Then check back in to make sure they did. Really hector them about it. Jeopardize your relationship. They'll understand. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, home to the one true St. Joan, Cusack. This has been The Constant. This is The Constant, A History of Getting Things Wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Ugh. I touched the mic. Ugh.